This is episode 22 with Raphael Chow, the CEO and co-founder at Weva. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Raphael Chow is the CEO and co-founder at WeVat, a platform that helps travelers get tax refunds on purchases made in the UK. To date, WeVat has helped travelers from 88 countries get tax refunds on purchases amounting to more than 16 million pounds. In this episode, you'll learn about how Raphael's upbringing in Asian Canada shaped his worldview, how he made the transition from studying biochemistry at Oxford to working as a consultant, and the lessons he has learned from building a startup over the last four years. We recorded this podcast while Raphael was in China, so there might be some connectivity issues, but it turned out great nonetheless. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hey, Raphael, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Justin, for having me. So tell, tell our listeners, where in the world are you right now? Well, right now, I'm actually sat in Shanghai, which is not where I'm normally. I am normally based in London, United Kingdom, but uh, I left the UK about well, just less than a month ago to come over to this side of the planet as a bit of an escape from the most recent wave of COVID that's that's sweeping across Europe right now. And what what is uh, life like in Shanghai right now relative to what you're experiencing in UK? How how back to quote unquote normal is it based on what you've been well, seeing? You know what I have to say, life is actually quite normal down here. You would barely notice it, save the odd mask that's being worn, that's being worn by people. But uh, all the things that we seem to have now almost forgotten since we've lived in COVID-struck uh, sides of the planet. Our are back, you know, in, in China. So all the restaurants, hubs, all that is open. People are out, out and about on the streets. There isn't really that general sense of panic and fear uh, as I had been experiencing when I still in London. Wow. And you're saying masks aren't very common? People are very disciplined, so they still wear them. Yeah. But okay, good, you know, good. people are using it less than than people were, you know, half a year ago. Yeah, yeah. So indoor dining's open, transportation, and yeah, all, all schools I'm feeling are open. It's, it's like back to normal. And yeah, so, exactly. do you have any? What's your plan to go back to UK to the UK? What is going to be the decision point for when you're comfortable there? Yeah, well, put it this way, I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> because that's just, and, and it's not it's not just me, right? It's just because it doesn't seem like the government's in a hurry to fix it either. <laughs> that's the yeah, problem. Yeah. Um, I'll stay, I'll stay, jokes aside, I'll stay on this side of the planet until at least Chinese New Year is gone. So I get to spend some time with my girlfriend and with my family. Oh, great, great. And you also get to enjoy amazing food. So yes, um, exactly. that would be another reason to stick along a bit longer. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for joining. Um, obviously, we have a, a mutual uh, friend in common, so I'm glad we got to connect. Um, before we kind of get in, into your uh, work at WeVad and um, you know the company that you've been working on for almost five years, we'd love to just start with a bit of your personal background. So um, why don't you tell listeners um, kind of your your history of like where you're born and and what your childhood looked like? Yeah, sure. Well, I started I started off by saying that I live in London normally, uh, but in fact, I'm I'm both a Canadian and a Hong Kong passport holder. But describing like where I'm from, what my ethnicity is, what my cultural background is, has always been a bit of a puzzle because mm. I'm kind of like the super multicultural kid, basically. That's that's grown up all over the place. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong, but at the age of five, uh, my family immigrated to Canada, and in fact, I lived in Toronto for quite a long time as well before returning to Hong Kong at the age of ten, and. Um, I was there until the end of high school and then went to the UK to do university and I've lived in the UK since. So all my adult life has been in the UK, basically. Mm. And, you know, being a Canadian and being based in Toronto, what were the couple of things that stood out as uh, memories of your time living? Oh, in my God, I had such a good childhood there, like whether it's tobogganing down. Uh, snowy hills or pajama day maple syrup oh my god <laughs> you just don't get that right you don't get that uh, elsewhere so I look back at those kinds of um, times with a lot of fondness that's great and yeah you did talk about your very um, multicultural and diverse background right how, how did mm. you kind of come to grips with 
your identity or how what was your identity like when you were growing up because like you said you were born in Hong Kong you spent time um, in Canada and then you eventually uh, went to the UK um, did you feel like you had your identity rooted in you know one one of uh, these countries or parts of the world or was it really a hybrid of of all these different places that you're from yeah, it really is a hybrid. And I think for a long time, in fact, until I came to the UK, it hasn't really been something that I even thought too much about, I guess, because back in Hong Kong throughout all of high school, as I, I was in an international school. So I was mm. kind of around people like myself, you know, kind of yeah. citizens of the world, you know. Um, but I guess when you come to the UK and start being immersed in a, in a you know, I went to Oxford, so you get some pub, private school kids who are very 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 British right and then when you're next to them you're like oh hang on a minute yeah I'm definitely not like you so what am I <laughs> you know that's that's when the the awareness for uh, the cultural identity question starts to start to crop up um I guess it's hard to answer that one I would still call Hong Kong home because my parents live there mm. but at the same time like every single time I hop on a plane back to the UK that also feels home. It feels like I'm going back to somewhere I've been a long, long time now. So in short, I don't really have a solid answer as to where I am, but I've come to terms with that as well. So I'm perfectly comfortable with being what I am, I guess, uh, which is yeah. which is a hybrid, a hybrid uh, a mixture of cultures. But I guess um, uh, to to summarize this bit, though, I still identify as Chinese because I think mm. a lot of my cultural values and the way I see things, the lens through which I see the world. Uh, is very much influenced by my Chinese heritage. Mm. So talk a little bit more about that. So like when you're, let's say, growing up in Hong Kong and Canada, um, how did your parents like steer or like add structure to your to your uh, day? Were there key priorities that um, you had to focus on? You know, the stereotypical uh, math, science, maybe, maybe piano or violin, or did you have a much more uh, kind of liberal childhood? What was that like? Yeah, so I guess my my mom out of Asian moms was probably the least tiger like. <laughs> uh, so she wasn't she wasn't at all uh, directive about what I must have done, but you know despite that she still wanted to uh, you know get me learning piano and all that kind of stuff because that it's it's kind of like a must right <laughs> your your sort of uh, birthright kind of thing. So um, yeah, I mean uh I, I my afternoons were super busy after school it was like piano classes and then and oboe on a on a different day and then like drawing on a different yeah. day so <laughs> i kind of went through that that phase but i i guess like as i kind of grew up my um mom kind of started to let go and she saw that i knew what i wanted mm. myself and kind of let me track my own course and find my own path, which i which i'm really grateful for So what were your interests when you were growing up as a kid? Um, where did you find yourself naturally gravitating to? Definitely science. For a very long time, I thought I was going to become a doctor. Uh, and hmm. yeah, I was kind of nerdy in a way uh, in high school as well. So uh, I, found, I found myself like after school, just looking at anatomy books. and another, another big passion of mine was actually languages. I did three European languages when I was in high school. Um, German, French, and Spanish. So that stayed with me now, even because with WeVat, we're very much a, a European affair. So the languages come into play yeah. and are useful for that. Wow. So just so I'm clear, you, uh, you wanted to go into medicine and become a doctor. Wasn't a nudge that you got from your parents or aunties or uncles, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know what, actually, so this is the most unorthodox thing about my mom, right? She actually talked me out of medicine. Because she said, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. knowing you and knowing your personality, you don't seem like the type who's who, who wants to spend all his time in a hospital and only mm. talk about medicine, right? She said, like, you seem to be too curious, far too curious about far too many things mm -hmm. to want to just dedicate yourself into one field. So why don't you find something that, opens more doors and only if you find that one door that you are very very passionate about and want to get married to then close that door but before then don't leave all the options open right and I th that was a great piece of advice yeah, yeah i i think we we had another guest on the show um earlier whose parents also discouraged them to go into medicine because 
it would have been a hard life. And um, sure, sure. I think the the mom or the dad was saying, hey, if you you want a um, comfortable life, don't become a doctor. So it's neat to hear that your parents also kind of gave you some pause and questions to help you really de think deeply about that. Um, mm. So how did you end up deciding to um, to study molecular and cellular biochemistry? <laughs> very, very well researched. Yeah, that's exactly the right title for it. Um, well, here's the thing. So I find biochemistry really fascinating because it, what you study as a, biochem as a biochemist is the building blocks of life. And um, when I was going through choosing what subject to, to study for uni, I found I was naturally really, really drawn to understanding like the underlying first principles of how stuff worked basically. And to understand the building blocks of how life worked just seemed like an amazing uh, ambition to to, mm. to strive towards, right? And so I also thought like, you know, one of the things I wanted to achieve if I were to become a doctor was to save lives and help people live mm. better. But I reasoned with myself that if, even if I became the best brain surgeon, let's say, throughout my lifetime, I could probably help hundreds of people. Whereas if I went into biochemistry yeah. and was able to be, you know, a researcher that contributed to the mm. discovery of a blockbuster drug, then I'd be touching millions of lives, which is much more impactful. Mm. Uh, so that's what made me made me go into biochemistry. Mm. So you actually had the intent not necessarily to become a doctor, but you know maybe work in research and uh, working at a, a pharma company. Is that? Yeah, kind of exactly. Thing? That was that was yeah. that was plan A when I was in first year uni, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah. And what was life like at Oxford? Um, you, you kind of mentioned this was kind of your first time living and setting in the UK. Up until then, you were uh, obviously an international like in international schools in Hong Kong and and lived and studied in Canada. But what was the what was the Oxford experience like? Oh, it was absolutely magical. I think that's the right word for it. It, it especially since I've graduated now. Looking back at those times, it really mm. is a. Yeah. A, a very very special place you know the the the, mm -hmm. the whole ambiance of the city as well is really academic and you know just being in the city kind of makes you want to go into a library and open a book and just start reading <laughs> um what yeah. i also really enjoyed was the diversity of people actually and the diversity of subjects so unlike like most unis where uh because you're socializing mainly with your faculty therefore the people around you are you know, if you're a lawyer, then also lawyers. And if you're a doctor, also doctors. In Oxford, they have the collegiate system. And what that means is basically you get to spend a lot of time and you know, even live with people who are from a whole range of different top, mm. uh, uh, subjects. And so, you know, around me would be people who, who were studying English literature and mathematics and physics and law and tons of just anthropology is that and so you know when you go out and um have meals in the in the dining hall uh you you just get such a breadth of opinion on the same subject that by mm -hmm. and large you soak up tons of knowledge from all these different people and you end up having really really engaging intellectual conversations so i've really enjoyed that bit of oxford mm. so how did that like diversity of of thought and exposure to different um areas of study and different people ultimately shape what you wanted to do after you graduated university? <laughs> it probably didn't. <laughs> I'd be romanticizing it a bit too much if I tried <laughs> to uh, say that. You know, I, I guess like, at some point practicality kicks in. And one yeah. thing about what um, uh, I guess is that it just attracts all the investment banks and consulting firms to come, right? And, and so, you get a lot of mm -hmm. brainwashing and plus they bribe you with good wine and foods and <laughs> bellinis and stuff like that as well. oh, yeah. so, so uh so at some point you know around year two or three uh, it, this 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 awareness came to me and i was like oh hang on a minute why is everyone looking at investment banking and consulting maybe i should look into it too but the reason right. why i um uh, decided to depart from biochemistry and, and the pharma um as the original course was wasn't because of money or anything like that it was because I realized that mm. if I went into uh, the usual track of doing a PhD and then going into research, I'd very much just become a cog in the wheel in a pharma company. And yeah. the people who seemed to have decision-making power were always people who were very commercially astute mm. and knew business really well. 
And so I kind of reasoned with myself and said, I could maybe perhaps go back and do a PhD, but if I did a PhD, that's four or five years minimum of time invested. And it'd be really hard to jump back out and Mm. do something commercial again. And that just seemed like the wrong way around if I, if I did what everyone told me to do. So I kind of decided that I would first of all, come out and do consulting and, you know, harking back to what my mom was saying, open a few more doors rather than close them. Yeah. And, reassess uh what it was after two years and decide again great so after graduating you spent about two years at monitor deloitte the strategy consulting firm um what projects did you work on and and what were some of the key skill sets that you walked away from that experience with oh uh quite a lot actually i think both soft and hard skills the hard Mm. skills are the usual suspects of powerpoint and excel and uh, data analysis tools and visualization tools and things like that, uh, which is all very good and essential for business. But I guess the soft skills is where it really matters because uh, consulting, one thing that I really like about consulting is you work in small groups and projects aren't really long at all. Eight, 10 weeks or so is the average length. So you, by and large, you get to work with many, many different types of people and, and um, get exposed to different personalities as well in the workplace. And that, again, that that exposure and that diversity really sort of um, fine tunes the way you interact with other people and helps you read other people's body language better and interpret their personalities and their wants and desires better as well. Uh, that That's not just a valuable skill for consulting, but also for entrepreneurship, I think, big time. Mm. So how did, how did the um, kind of idea to start your own ventures um, pop up in your mind? Was that... Um, something you've been thinking about for a while? Was there a flash of inspiration while you're uh, working as a consultant? Can you share a little bit more about um, that journey? Yeah, sure. So back then, it was really funny because uh, maybe you've seen this as well if you've ever come to London and flown out from Heathrow Airport, but there's always this humongous queue Mm -hmm. outside Terminal 3. And, uh, you know, the many times I walk past, I was just like, what's going on here? Is this like some lottery thing? Is there like a free giveaway? Like, (laughs) so what is causing everyone to line up for two hours? And the answer ended up being because they were stuck getting a tax refund and they couldn't get their form stamped properly by by customs. And when I discovered that, I was just like, this is impossible, right? Because it's the 21st century. Why is, you know, number one, why are we still using paper? And then number two, how can you make people go through such a painful process? Shouldn't the whole thing just be digitized, Uh surely? Um, And then back then as well, uh, uh, at Deloitte, I met my co-founder and he was in another part of Deloitte, Deloitte Digital. So he had more of a a Mm. UX hat on, whereas I had more of a, I guess, a business and uh, uh, finance hat on. And we put two and two together and uh, came up with Mebet. And that's how the whole thing started. In the beginning, it wasn't even... A startup thing. It was more just born out of curiosity, and we really just see whether or not there was an internet way of doing this. So we started picking up partners at the firm and saying to them, you know, we had some ideas about some this tax thing. Can we talk to you about it? And that led to one thing, and more people and uh, other partners getting interested in things like that. And so we had to set up a deck. So then we started showing them this deck and they were like, this is amazing. Can we put you in front of our client, Parrots? And we were like, what? We, we, ha- we don't even have anything. We have no product. This is like all just a concept really. Um, but, but I guess it made them look really cool. So yeah, so we said yes <laughs> and we met uh, Harrods and the, the ball got kicked off like that and uh, it, it just kept rolling. Wow. Were, you, were you surprised at how supportive um your colleagues were uh, within Monet, especially partners and more senior folks within the organization. Some might be worried that, oh, if I tell them that I'm actually thinking about doing something on the side, they might actually um, not be as supportive. How, how did you actually think about that? Yeah, I was, I was actually. I, I guess um, when you do the induction program, they make partners seem like gods, right? They're like yeah. that <laughs> almighty thing up there and yeah. they work their way up the corporate ladder and you know one must not touch them unless one must that kind of thing <laughs> but um they were much more down to earth than i than i had imagined mm. and uh i guess at the end of the day they saw that I, I i think i think what the reason why they helped us was because they saw passion and maybe mm-hmm. that reminded them of something of their own youth in the past wow 
That's great. So they made the introduction for for you and your co-founder to meet Harrods. What did you guys do once you realized you had this meeting with a, uh, you know, storied retailer in uh, the UK? We were like, oh shit, we better practice the pitch. <laughs> yeah. And I think if, if, if there's anything, I mean, consulting, uh, one skill, of course, I didn't mention just now about consulting is the, the skill of bullshitting <laughs> because what <laughs> consulting really trains you to think on your, on your yeah. feet and to react right on the spot, whether it's to another colleague of the same level or to a partner when he's asking you a tough question or even to a client, right? Because sometimes mm -hmm. you're just put on the spot like that. But um, no other time have I been put on the spot as much as these times I've had to pitch to various retailers. Because obviously, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I knew nothing about value-added tax, VAT, yeah. <laughs> and, and yet I was pitching to people who had worked in the industry for decades. Mm. Um, and so when they ask you questions that you generally have no idea about, what are you supposed to say, right? And, and this is exactly right. what I was faced with. So, so often I would just kind of throw the ball back at them and go like, we're working on a solution that we think you'll find interesting, but actually, how do you currently solve it? And then, and then, and then that was the hilarious moment because mm. they looked at each other and they were like, shit, how do we actually solve it? They had no idea. Even the veterans in the industry had no idea what they were doing. And that's, a, that's the funny um, revelation about how the world works, I guess. <laughs> Very interesting. And, you know, for the listeners who aren't based in the UK or who haven't done a lot of travel there, can you explain more about value added tax and um, why the tax refund process is uh, so important? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, VAT refunds is open to non-European travelers coming to Europe whenever they buy something that they're going to bring out of the country uh, back home. So think of, think of things like f fashion items, accessories, electronics, that kind of stuff, jewelry, that kind of stuff. And uh, the reason is because European governments want to entice and uh, incentivize these shoppers to spend more in their countries. And plus, because they're not really consuming it in country, they're technically consuming it in their home country, which is why the VAT isn't due on the goods and they can reclaim it. But rather than deducting it at the point of sale, you have to go through this somewhat horrendous process of filling in lots and lots of tax refund forms mm -hmm. with the same details again and again and again. And then at the airport, produce those forms to a customs agent so that they can then stamp the forms. And you, you then have to, well, at least in the traditional process, you then had to wait for, on average, about two months before the money would be, would, be set, uh, would be sent to you. So all in all, it's a very cumbersome process, which led to many, many people just giving up because sometimes it came to the choice of, do I miss my flight or do I get my tax refund? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, so that, that's how it was like in the past. Yeah. And I, I remember actually um, being so excited when I learned about the VAT refund because I bought my wife's engagement ring in the UK. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it was a quite a good chunk of money that I could get back in tax. And, and I was like, is this is this real? Like, I don't I don't know where else I could do this, but it seemed like a great deal. But um Seems like a win-win for everybody, right? For the consumer, you're saving on the taxes. For um, yeah. the the governments, are obviously driving um, tourist spending, and then the retailers obviously, um, hopefully, sell more stuff because people are willing to buy there. So when you when you're actually thinking about like the ecosystem when you're creating and pitching WeVat, um, what were some of the biggest challenges in trying to sell this idea through to um, either the government authorities or retailers? Yeah, that's a great question. Different stakeholders have different needs for, well, let's start with the government. The, the, the government's main concern is around compliance. They're really scared of people abusing the scheme and mm. claiming back back on things they're not supposed to claim back on and also on bad actors. You know, there's pretty there's criminal gangs that try to abuse the system, right? Oh, and wow. so for them, the question is, how do we clamp down on those people? Now, the way that we've solved it is by introducing UKYC. So in the past, there were no real identity checks that were being done on the traveler other than the shop assistant doing a perfunctory, can I see your passport? Mm -hmm. But let's face it, the vast majority of travelers don't walk around with the passports all the time. Yeah. So at best, they will kind of pull up a photo on their phone, which can be easily Photoshopped. Mm -hmm. So there's no reliability in, in that whatsoever. And what we did was we basically took a page 
out of uh, all the neobanks books and introduced EcoIC. So we have a banking standard application in WeVat's app that uh, allows us to uh, scan and identify the individual traveler. So that really deters people from acting badly because we've mm -hmm. ID'd them uh, uh, properly this time. Um, and then as for retailers, well, here's the funny thing, and this is almost like a bit of an industry secret that we found that the more retailers we spoke to, uh, just to take a step back, right? What we wanted to create was a journey that was simple and refunded the customer as much as possible. And that was contrary to what we saw when we first stumbled across uh, the queues at Heathrow Airport, because the reality was people were charged 40%. So instead of getting 100 pounds back on your, on, your, on your tax refund, you would get 60, because mm. 40% was taken away as admin fees. Wow. So that naturally, that's a question of, of, you know, why is it so high? Like, who's charging this stuff? And we always thought that it was the refund companies, the middlemen mm -hmm. who were charging this fee. That's only half the story because it turns out that they give a huge chunk back to retailers as commission. Mm. And so when we discovered that, we said, oh, okay, well, that's ironic because we always thought that retailers were supportive of the scheme and trying to help the customer yeah. not double dip on profits. Yeah. That turns out to not be the case. So what we then did was we had to innovate, not just on the policy side, but also on the business model side. And long story short, it, it, WeVat is a disintermediation play. Hmm. So what we've done is found a way to uh, go B2C so that we yeah. can distribute and process tax refunds directly for the consumer without the need to go through the retailer. And by doing so, there's two huge benefits. One is that we don't have to give permission to the retailer and therefore our processing costs are a lot lower. And second is the entire journey is now not fragmented, right? It's consolidated into one claim that you submit through WeVat as opposed to 20 different claims that you, that, you, that you have to go through because every single retailer gives you a different form. Mm. So th that, that is a, a great kind of like surprise and insight that um, you and your team have found. How have the retailers responded, right? Because this is clearly um, making the commission pie much smaller for them. Um, but what have you heard from them and how have how has the industry responded? Well, they haven't gone after us as such. Yeah. Um, we tried to uh, talk with retailers to see if they wanted to be part of this in some way, because what I how I kind of looked at it was the commission that they get, though attractive because it's essentially, you know, free money that goes to their bottom line, free and in inverted commas, of course. It's not. It's nowhere near as attractive as bringing a new customer to our shop, right? Because yeah. let's face it, as a retailer, it's really cutthroat these days. They're fighting. Customer mm -hmm. loyalty barely exists anymore, so they're fighting for attention for the attention of shoppers and fighting to hold on to the same uh, customers they've got them. So my rationale was that if we can uh, drive people to shop at a particular retailer shop, that would be way more effective and way more attractive than them getting a slice of a slice of a slice right but i guess retail you know retail habits are hard to break so so retailers really haven't been able to sort of break that uh chain of thinking so far yet anyway mm. yeah but I, but in terms of what they've done with us they, no they haven't really done anything with us and in fact some of the shop assistants i guess it depends on who you speak to as well i'm generalizing a little bit when i say this kind of stuff because I, after all you know commercial directors are hired in to look after the the retailers um bottom line so i can only understand the the position that they're coming from but if we look at store operations and speak with uh, sales assistants for example you get a very different picture because sales assistants the last thing they want to deal with is trouble and faff at the point of sale. Yeah. And that's what the old system did. They had to print out this huge oh, yeah. piece of paper, yeah. explain to them, and then do it in a different language. <sighs> Lots of friction. We've got rid of all of that stuff because, uh, well, we, most of our customers are, are Chinese uh, uh, travelers. The app was bilingual, so uh, that they didn't need to explain anything, right? And all they had to tell them to do was download this app. Mm. Brilliant. Um... Can you talk a little bit more about how you have gotten the word out about um, your app and platform and kind of the most successful channels? Because um, 
obviously it's B2C, so getting uh, customers to download this is is probably you know one of the biggest steps for you. But can you share a little bit more about that strategy and what's been working well? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, so uh, uh, traditionally, the whole tax refund market has been driven very much by luxury shoppers coming from places like uh, China, mm -hmm. Russia, the Middle East. To start with, we've had to find one niche and double down on that. And we decided to go with the Chinese market, not least because of my background, but also because that seems to be a huge area of growth. Mm. And uh, we're betting on the rising middle class in China. One really effective channel that has worked well for us is Chinese social media. And actually, I'm really also really happy to say that our users have done so much to refer us to all their other friends. You know, oh, wow. we, we started um, a campaign in 2019. Yeah, because we only actually truly launched in May 2019. And so what we did that summer was uh, target graduating students. And that was a good move because basically all the relatives and friends that came over to see them and visit them and uh, watch this graduation ceremony, they all then ended up using WeBat as well. So there was a huge word of mouth thing going on to the point where we could, by late summer, completely switch off our marketing spend and wow. still get hundreds, thousands of people pouring through every month. Wow, amazing. And um, has that still been the strategy? Like you've done a lot of uh, kind of organic uh, marketing as opposed to paid advertising? Yeah, exactly. That was the big debate. You know, at one point, as we we're hiring our, our head of marketing, we, we met a lot of people. And broadly speaking, the people that bifurcated into two types. One was much more content and influencer driven, and the other was very much like digital marketing type, right? They talk mm -hmm. about CPC and display programmatic and things like that, using, using a, a lot of numbers and analytics to try and drive insight as to what we should do next. And in the end, we opted for the former, the, the content and influencer type, because mm -hmm. we felt like we needed to kind of reinvent the dialogue around tax refund a bit and build a brand for ourselves if we were to become a truly successful b2c company in the space and i think this it's interesting as well because we are kind of at the cross-section of three industries uh fintech travel and retail mm -hmm. and in the past if we if you look at how traditional refund companies have tried to speak to you they don't really there's no personality to them they're so cold and clinical and it's kind of like a transactional here's this piece of paper and if you're lucky you'll get your money back kind of thing and if you don't don't even try and talk to us mm. which is just not the way to do it these days you know people care about customer service they care about being cared about <laughs> so so that we've had in in many ways is also trying to reinvent that the whole experience around how you use a financial product yeah very cool. Um, obviously, a lot of uh, WeVat is based on this assumption that tax-free shopping in the UK um, will be around. And there's been news recently that that's actually ending at the uh, beginning of 2021. Share a little, you know, share a little bit more about um, kind of how you found out about that news and how your team is currently pivoting. And I feel like, you know, this is probably very typical of um, uh, a founder and CEO within a company, right? There's a lot of exogenous things that happen and uh, business and, and the product will need to adapt, but share a little bit more about um, how you and the team have responded to that. Yeah, sure. Well, this is definitely a, a big and unexpected exogenous factor to say the least. We were, so the way that we found out about it, we, over the years, have built a, a lot of government connections, actually. And I was actually part of the, the group that was being consulted about the future of VAT refunds in the mm -hmm. UK. And the decision to cancel VAT refunds in the UK was a complete curveball. No one in the industry saw that coming. So I was very, very, very shocked when the email came through on, on one Friday afternoon in September saying that they were going to do this. And it, I, I was so astonished because, and, and also so disappointed because I felt like uh, Brexit, if done well, would be an opportunity for the UK to differentiate itself yeah. from other European countries. And in the tax refund world, what that meant was to leverage this opportunity to extend VAT refunds to Europeans. Then the, the UK will become a huge shopping haven. Because mm -hmm. you can imagine, like we're very well 
connected. There's a Eurostar bringing people from uh, France, from Paris, mm -hmm. from Brussels, from uh, Amsterdam across really easily. All of them would come here and shop if they could get a tax refund off. You're basically buying things for 20% cheaper. Why not, right? It'll be a great weekend trip, Britain. But instead, they've done the other thing, which is cut it and said goodbye. You know, we're going to sever all these links. Please don't come to the UK to shop anymore. Go instead to Paris and Milan and et cetera. So that presented a big dilemma um, and some some very involved conversations with uh, with the board. What we've decided to do is to press on into Europe because let's face it, tax refunds is not something that's going to go away. This is an outlier. What the UK has done is an outlier. And in fact, sad for the UK, but Europe is rubbing its hand in glee. You know, Paris and Milan are probably celebrating, going like, I cannot believe the Brits have done this, <laughs> that they not have the foresight that COVID will end and travel will resume and, you know, tourists will want to come back and find the cheapest place to shop. So right now we're setting up shop in Europe and uh, we think it will be, given the technology that we've built so far and the, and the great rep that we've uh, managed to uh, sort of secure with our customer base, uh, I think we're in a good position to be able to do a good job in Europe as well and to replicate the success that we've achieved in the UK. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, some of the numbers that I saw have been super impressive. I think um, what I read was that WeVet has helped travelers from 88 countries get tax refunds on purchases more than, uh, or amounting to more than 16 million pounds. And I'm sure that number is, is even bigger now. Um, but it's great to see the success that has mm -hmm. already happened in the UK. And I'm sure, especially the relationship that you're building with your user base and also just the strong reputation that you've had will, will carry on to uh, other markets as well. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Um, we'd love to just kind of switch gears just to talk more about, you know, life as a, uh, you know, founder and CEO. How have you been able to manage and prioritize your time? Um, do you have any routines that you, you typically stick to or you really just take it day by day? Yeah, I do. Well, this year has kind of thrown a lot of routines out of the question, but let's, let's, so let's kind of ignore this year, right? And talk about life as it kind of was. And, you know, if we want to talk about remote working and all that kind of stuff, we can also go into it. But pre-lockdown, pre-COVID days, um, there was kind of a nice routine that I fell into where about three, four times a week, I'd wake up early at about 6.30 and go to the gym and just like really sweat it out, do a sauna and then shower. And I always ended my showers with one minute of cold showers. And, <laughs> and that was just so good. Like I walked out of the gym and I felt so invincible. You know, I could really <laughs> take on the world. <laughs> um, and then one of my passions and hobby as well is wine tasting. Mm. Um, so I would always try and find time to do that. So at least two, three times a month, sometimes even more, I'd kind of uh, join wine tasting so I can sample different types of wines from all over the world. And it's really, really fun. Uh, my, I, you know, some, some of them would actually be physical trips that I'd make to these countries and, and so that I can see the vineyards and talk to the producers and things like that. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'd, I'd actually join trade tastings. That's the, that's the hack that I've found. You pretend you're from trade and you go into oh. trade tastings and you go like, oh, yes, yes, I, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of starting a fusion restaurant and I really need some of that wine. Are <laughs> there, do some? you need any credentials or do they just let you uh, come in and they take your word for it? <laughs> no, technically not. But I guess it would kind of be hard to pull it off if you knew nothing about it. Um, I, you know what? I, I told you I was a bit of a geek, right, <laughs> at the start of the conversation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, to the so in the in wine, um, I, I'm so geeky to the extent where when I was back at Deloitte, I took a whole week off of holiday just to take an exam uh, called WSET, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. Oh, so I'm wow. actually level three qualified, um, which is what, and it was so funny as well because the people in my class, there was about twenty of us, all of them were from industry, all of them worked oh. in restaurants or were like <laughs> you know assistant sommeliers working their yeah. way up into a hotel and stuff like that. And then I was like, you know, I'm just doing this for fun. I'm a management consultant. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is a certification to become a sommelier, right? I'm assuming like it, it's actually recognized in the industry. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. So would that be your side hustle if you ever um, had the time to do that? 
I think it's always going to be a bit of a passion project <laughs> yeah. uh, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, and for the listeners, um, you know, there's some who are either earlier in their career or um, still in school. What advice would you have to um, people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their career? I, I know it's a broad question, but, you know, if there are any guiding principles that you think have been helpful for you, it would be great to hear that. That's a great question. I think a lot of it comes down to one word, purpose. Mm. And especially as an Asian kid growing up in Hong Kong, sometimes purpose is rubbed away from you yeah. because you listen too much to what society expects of you. And mm. I think to all the people who are uh, young, aspirational, or want to do something with their lives, I guess the one thing I'd say to them is to ask themselves seriously, what makes you passionate? What makes you really want to get up every morning and go out there and fight and fight for it? Don't let other people talk you out of it. Don't let other people say that you cannot. Mm. And in terms of even like figuring out what that thing is, um, how have you been able to find it? Has it been experimentation, self-reflection, um, any other type of activity that you found very valuable to just help you get clarity on, on what purpose means to you? Sometimes it's through process of elimination. Mm -hmm. So the things that you feel slightly uncomfortable about doing or kind of, you know, drag your heels a bit, going, you see this, you know, you, this is a very trite example, but you know, those times when your friend asks you out for dinner, and you're kind of like, eh, maybe not. That, yeah, that's probably a no, right? If you're really honest, yeah. And someone said, like, make a snap decision right now. Are you gonna? Are you go are you going or not? It's probably gonna be a no. Mm -hmm. It's like those things. Yeah. But over over time and in life, there's too many of those moments, right? And if you at every single point in time, you are able to just kind of go like, you know what? I'm actually not gonna do that. That's one way of building clarity. Mm. The second, um. It's a good one. For me, it was kind of innate. So for me, I one thing that I'm really, really passionate about with the WeVat journey is how we're changing the face of the industry, right? I explained the dynamics before, and I feel like there's such a huge need for us to be that pioneer that pushes the boundaries of policy so that the customers can get a fair journey. Like that's what gets me fighting every single day. But but in truth, you know, I think there's so many other exciting things out there as well. And in the future, I would love to do something to do with healthcare again. That's where I started mm -hmm. uh, with, at least education wise, that's where I started. And I really want to uh, be able to do something in that area as well. Um, so so yeah, that was quite innate, but the, the need to help people and to further the human experience and human health and livelihood, I guess, that, that was an innate purpose. Mm. And are you the type of person who has like career plans or like a vision for what your career looks like? Or have you been much more opportunistic and like following your intuition? Oh, uh, you know what, Justin, that's such a good question because back at Deloitte, I was, I had my 10 year plan planned out. It was gonna be, you know, three years at Deloitte, then transfer to US office, then go to private equity, you know, mm -hmm. then cash it in big. <laughs> the whole thing was planned out. But if there's one thing that entrepreneur teaches you is that you cannot engineer the future. Yeah. All you can do is to try and absorb as much knowledge and acquire as many skills to prepare yourself for a future that is unknown. And so I've kind of stopped doing that. And I focus much more um, on myself and actually a lot on how I interact with other people as well. Mm. That's also another thing that's, that's changed with entrepreneurship because you know, certainly back in Hong Kong, I got the feeling that as long as you got the good grades and as long as you were super, 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 super smart, you're going to be successful. That's wrong. What turns out to matter much more is not how good you are, but how good you are with people. Mm. Whether or not you're able to lean on other people and have, I don't want to use the word network. It's, it's more like a group of friends and collaborators who can work with you towards a mission. And has that been liberating for you? Because it's like, it's such a different uh, way of living and working, right? Like um, having a plan versus being much more present, going with the flow, be, 
being more focused on, you know, who's in front of you. Um, has Have you found that liberating or is that also a little bit scary because, you know, you, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen in the future. You don't, you don't have a clear um, mm. intention on what that looks like. It's both, but overall I find it more liberating than not mm. because I yeah. feel like, um, right now I'm able to be a much more authentic version of myself so much so that I see entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, not even, you know, the word career does not come to mind when I think of mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. What, what comes to mind is more like uh, a way of life. Mm. So I see, I, I, I'm, I'm living life through the boots of an entrepreneur in the, in the shoes of an entrepreneur. Yeah different almost like a different path right like you're choosing yeah the path well well worn and there's kind of a track right if you're in consulting or banking you know the path to move up and how long it should take but entrepreneurship is much more of a journey and almost like uh like walking through the woods or a trail as opposed to a well-paid path so um, super yeah. interesting and you know another question kind of related to this is just like um the topic of money it does come up in conversations I've either had in the podcast or, you know, in my personal life around, you know, I would love to do my own thing, but, you know, I'm getting treated well. I have a, I have a steady paycheck from a well-respected employer. I don't think they're going to go out of business anytime soon. How would you advise people to think about the money question when it comes time to um, making a decision on what to do with their, their career or, or work life? Yeah. Well, I started my company when I was 24. And I'm now 28. I think 24-year-old Raphael would say something very different to the <laughs> me I am today. <laughs> yeah. Because when you're young, naive, and somewhat reckless, <laughs> but full of ambition, then you don't care about money, right? And uh, what I told myself back then was, you know what? Maybe this will fail. In fact, it probably will fail. But if there's any time at all to try something, now is the time to do it because I have no baggage on me, yeah. right? If, I, if, if it all kind of goes to shit, then I, I pick myself up and do something else and try again. Um, whereas I feel like if you're in a different life stage, then sometimes you can't, you don't have the liberty of, of being quite so reckless anymore. So I guess if I had to start something completely fresh right now, um, it's harder. I, I would need some kind of safety raft, I guess, first. I, in general, this is common sense, I guess, to many people, but but sometimes it's not common because I've seen people make this, this mistake. Don't quit your job <laughs> until you have a lot of certainty over what you're doing, right? And, and that certainty is hard to define, but usually it comes in the form of some sort of validation that your product sells, right? So some kind of product market, some version of product market fit, some version of like lots and lots of customer feedback, not your best mate going like, oh yeah, yeah, I've used it. It looks great. Keep, keep going, right? Because they're trying to make you feel good. Um, and then what's even better is if you can, if you get a term sheet on the table, right? From an investor. Yeah. So just thinking about ways to de-risk it. And I think, you know, even hearing your story of when you were in consulting, you already had yeah. some validation from huge retailers like Harrods that either they're not thinking about yeah. it or, oh, somebody should build this. So. Yeah, but you know, actually, Justin, I just broke all. I, I broke all the rules I've just said to you just now because when I was twenty four, I did I did none of that. I kind of went like, okay, you know what? Am I going to do this? Yes, I am going to do this. Do I have a visa if I quit my job? No, I don't. Does that mean I'll have to be kicked out if I cannot raise money and get a new visa? Yes, but you know what? That's what we're going to do because I'm going to now force myself to make it happen. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go home and live with my parents like yeah. a bit of a. Um, and I said to myself, I'm not going to let that happen. So you know what, we're, we're, gonna, we're going all in and it's very real now. So, yeah. so I guess that that's also another way of motivating yourself to, to, to do something great. No, that I mean, that resonates with me too, because I did, you know, my own version of that, which was leaving Deloitte when I was a consultant and um, working in the nonprofit world for about three years. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I started not getting paid. I was like unpaid volunteer for a year. And, you know, my mom and uncles and aunties were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I just, this, I'm, I was following my intuition and I feel like um, looking backwards, you know, using the jobs quote, it's easy to connect the dots. But when I was in it, I, I really had no idea what was going to happen. And I was truly following my intuition. I feel like those are sometimes the best decisions that we make in life. So it sounds like you did that too. 
Yeah. Um, great. And then last question is, what advice would you give to your younger self, whether it's 24-year-old Raphael or, you know, 21-year-old Raphael? What I would say to my younger self is probably that it's okay to lean on other people mm. and to not just rely on your own wit sometimes. And it's also completely okay to be vulnerable, uh, to even fail sometimes in front of others. I think often trying to ask that and also prevents you from seeing other facets, exploring and understanding other facets of yourself. Hmm, it's a great one. Yeah, I, I, that resonates with me too, because I do feel like even, you know, into my late 20s, early 30s, it was all about controlling the controllable and not being too reliant on other people. And when things went well or didn't go well, I could at least be 100% accountable to that. But to your point, I think especially as we get older and as we start to try to think about what is leadership and how do you actually have the biggest and yeah. um, most important impact on others around you, it is by working together, right? Trusting other people and not feeling like you have to control every single facet of your life or career. So that's great advice. Um, so for people who want to follow you on the internet, what's the best place for them to find you? Sorry, say that last bit again. Yeah, as um, for people who want to follow you or weave at on the internet, what's the best place for them to find you? Ah, yes, of course. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Raphael Chow. Great. Thank you, Raphael. This was an amazing chat. Um, loved hearing your story. Stay safe in, um, in China and good luck in your travels back to the UK. Have a great holiday and happy new year. Well, you Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.